Hello, this is Lilavis, and welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm the host of Key Ideas. This podcast empowers piano teachers to unlock the transformative power of music in their students and shift from a mindset of survival to one of revival. Today, I welcome Jim Litzelman. He's the chair of the editorial committee of the AMT, or the American Music Teacher Magazine. It's been a privilege to serve with Jim on the editorial board of the magazine for close to a year. If you are a member of the Music Teachers National Association, then you receive the AMT magazine, and perhaps you've read Jim's article published in the October-November 2021 issue. The article is called, My Personal Journey to Aging Backwards. It immediately caught my attention because of the title and the topic. In it, Jim shares his experience with focal dystonia, first diagnosed over 30 years ago when he was a doctoral student. In addition, Jim reveals the discovery he made that improved this neurological condition. Grab your earbuds and sneakers and listen in as you hear how Jim's expected career path was derailed and what he's learned about the importance of technique. His valuable insight and approach can be easily implemented in your next lesson with students of all levels. Before we get started, here's a little more about Jim. Jane Litzelman, NCTM, teaches piano and piano pedagogy at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is a frequent lecturer on wellness-related issues at state and national conferences. His particular area of interest is focal dystonia a condition in which Jim has lived with for almost 30 years, but has mostly overcome. He's an independent piano teacher in Arlington, Virginia, and currently chairs the editorial committee for American Music Teacher Magazine. Now, here's Leela with James. Hey, Jim Litzelman, thanks for joining me today. The minute I read your article in the AMT Magazine, I felt two things. First, I was glad to see an article about focal dystonia, even though a painful one. And two, I felt compelled to reach out and hoped that you would talk with me about your experience. I feel like we can learn so much from your story as pianists and teachers of pianists. So uh, when were you first diagnosed with focal dystonia? Well, I was nearing the end of my doctoral studies and it was 1993. And I was a very busy person, like we all are, and sat down to practice. My trio was preparing for the Fischoff uh, chamber music competition. And the uh, trio we were playing, there was a small passage of that had a, a portion of an A-flat major scale. So every time I would bring, try to bring my fourth finger over on the B-flat, it would play the B-flat, fall off, and then start to curl. And then that went a little bit. And I thought, well, that's weird. And it kept doing it. And then the next day I practiced and the same thing happened, but now both fingers started to curl under. So I really knew instantly, I didn't know what dystonia was. I hadn't heard of it, but I knew something was wrong because I, I just couldn't stop these fingers from curling under. So I, I think the committee was kind to me in my final recital because I was playing on the middle phalange of the third and fourth fingers mm-hmm. because I would go to play five and then they would just curl under. It was just the hand would do that. So, okay. So I would be panicking if I were you. And was there anyone in the room saying, oh, Jim, I think this is what you might have? No, I I, I hadn't even, 
as I said, I hadn't heard of this. And, uh, you know, really 1993 was still, despite Leon Fleischer and all that he had done for this, it was in the dark ages for focal dystonia. And it's much more out there now because unfortunately, there are more musicians who have this than we, than we might know. Classical pianists, I believe, are number one, and classical, classical guitarists are, are number two in terms of the, the kinds of musicians who get it. But so I just started reading, and, and I read there was an interview with Fleischer, actually, in the International Pianist from maybe 1990 or something. And when I read this, then I, I'm like, I have this. I know for mm. sure. So I, I had um, Kaiser Permanente at the time, and I went to the first neurologist. And when I, he hadn't even heard of focal dystonia. That shows you how much in the dark ages we were. Mm -hmm. And when I told him that the problem only really exhibited itself when I was playing the piano or typing on the computer, he thought that maybe I might need a psychiatrist more than I need um, a neurologist. Mm -hmm. And so the second neurologist I went to um, had heard of it. And then he sent me to NIH, and I went that whole thing. I'm sure people know that NIH has a whole division that's devoted to these kinds of motor skill movements. And they have lots of musicians who are going there for treatment, um, which is basically just shooting Botox into, into the arm. But, uh, yeah, it was at the beginning, it was, in my case, I was on my own, figuring out what <laughs> I had and diagnosing it and, and trying to move forward. Well, first of all, I can imagine it being a very lonely journey. And then second, why did you see a neurologist? So can you step us through what because dystonia what is? Because what Fleischer said in his article, oh, okay. um, dystonia is different from all other movement disorders that pianists can get, like tendonitis or carpal tunnel syndrome, because even though the problem manifests itself in the muscles, the problem is in the brain. Mm. And along the cerebral cortex, there is a tiny little spot for each of the digits. And when one has focal dystonia, not always, but most times, if the scan is done of the brain, what it will show is that maybe three, four, and five are mushed together in one mass. And then when you go to play one of those fingers, the brain can't really tell, mm, is this three, is this four, is this five? And then what happens? You get compensatory movements. That's why these fingers started to curl under for me because I would try to play five and the brain didn't know what we're doing. I thought we we're playing these, but they really hyper curled under the hand. But the other people, their fingers fly up. You know, there's um, mm. lots of different manifestations. Just as an aside, um, one can get dystonia anywhere in the body. Of course, there's the famous story of the oboist from Chicago Symphony, Alex Klein, who got embouchure dystonia. Um, if you don't know about that, I encourage people who are interested in this to, to check that out because it's a quite a remarkable story. Um, and there is a talk show host. I'm in Arlington, Virginia, so I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. And for years, maybe 25 years, there was a talk show host called who, whose name is Diane Rehm. And she had a spectacular uh, two-hour show every morning. She got uh, dystonia in her vocal cords. Mm. That's called spasmodic dysphonia. And she would she would get the injections of Botox, which would what the Botox does is it they try to inject it in the right spot so you can move more normally, but it deadens the muscles um, so you don't get as many compensatory movements. But for some people, it seems to work, but it's a short-lived thing. Like I, I, when I first was at NIH, there was a pianist who came up from someplace in Georgia. I don't know, but he timed his Botox injections 
with his uh, like exactly three weeks and two days, let's say, before his concert. So he had the optimal use. But I'll just tell you, it's no walk in the park with that because of the dead muscles. I couldn't even button my shirt um, because the muscles are so dead. And so I did that once and it just was not it didn't work for me. So I had to find other other ways. Sounds like you're just playing around with circuits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what is NIH? Can you explain National what that is? National Institute of Health. And uh -huh. I'm lucky that they're in Bethesda, Maryland. And, you know, when I went up there, they, um, they first give you, I don't know, a two-hour psychological evaluation to make sure that you're okay. And then what happened is they took me out to the piano. They had a grand piano there, and they would put these exceedingly thin rubber bands around different fingers and ask me to play in certain ways. And we didn't do that for more than a minute, you know, and they said, okay, that's fine. So um, the head neurologist, whose name was uh, Dr. Mark Hallett at that time, he said, just wait, we'll, we're going to discuss and we'll be with you in a few minutes. And um, I mean, literally 30 seconds later, they called me into the room and they said, you have focal dystonia. Well, even though I knew I had it, it was a very emotional thing. And I was in some ways relieved. Um, mm -hmm. And I just started crying because I, there was there were probably 20 or 22 neurologists from with research fellows from Europe and all over this, you know, they're devoting their life's work to dystonic type movements. And um, so it was it was a relief to hear that because I had still sort of figured out I had made things a little better. Um, I'd been getting roughed. I don't know. Some of you yeah. may mean, know mm -hmm. what roughing is, is a deep tissue massage. And that yes. had really helped. Um, and so I would play and try to choose repertoire carefully. And many people would say, well, your hand seems normal to me, but it was anything but normal. And in, mm. in truth, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but it's, it's not normal now. And there are musicians, guitarists. I, I can think of several people right now who say that they have totally fixed themselves. And I just don't believe that. Mm. I can play in an almost normal way when I'm by myself. It's actually quite wonderful. But when performance anxiety kicks in, mm -hmm. the dystonia rears its head, as I always say. And so I, I think I'm like a recovering alcoholic. I have to live with this for the rest of my life. But I keep getting more and more improvement. And that's what was um, great about this classical stretch program that was sort of... Wow. Let's let's go to that in just a minute because first of all, I want to head back to okay, now you've got this diagnosis. You're a doctoral student. You're looking for that wonderful PhD right behind your name. DMA. Yeah. DMA. Doctor okay, Clark. yes, okay. Yeah. And uh hoping for a wonderful career. And what happened when you got this diagnosis? Where did you go well, next then? I, I knew that everything this was a real game changer. Because when you're trying to play and your hand is doing this, and, and of course, I think this is sort of typical for most people who contract focal dystonia, is it gets worse over the first six, seven, eight months. It's, it's just unless you really know what, that you have it and you can start to, to retrain and do other kinds of things. But the condition gets worse and, um, and it gets more and more embedded. Um, you know, because and what happens then is the the arm just gets so tight, and as things maybe start to atrophy, you can move it even less normally, and so the you know sort of a vicious circle. So what happened? I thought, all right, well, I can't play. I'm really going to throw myself into teaching, and um, and I I uh, was lucky that I got hired at Catholic University as a part time 
person. And that eventually led into a, a much better position of directing the pedagogy program, which I was doing for many years and still teaching all of those courses. But I mostly developed my private studio at home and mm. um, thought, okay, I'm just going to have to teach. And I, and I was, I'm, I'm very much a person who is glasses half full and not half empty. And I believed from the get-go that I was going to defy what all of the doctors and neurologists and whatever said, and I was going to find a way to fix this. And so my mindset was, all right, instead of staying in bed and pulling the covers over my head, I'm, I'm going to read everything I can. So I tried to become um, really informed about technique and anatomy. So for most of a year, I didn't play at all, which probably was a mistake I now realize. Um, but I read more books than you can think of old books, even like Tobias Matei, um, his book, the visible and invisible in piano technique. And he has a statement in there where he says, if only we had 10 arms so that the work of each finger could be mm. supported by each arm. And that was a real sort of light bulb moment yes. for me in terms of how, how to practice. So I educated myself and, you know, as is often the case, when life doesn't turn out exactly how you think it's going to, in some ways, things might be better. Certainly, I'm a better teacher than, than I probably would have been otherwise, because I, I had to delve into things about um, anatomy and um, te technical truths, I would call them, that I might not have done so deeply. If, every, if everything's working, you know, we all sort of operate on if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it's broken, you have to find a way to fix it. But I guess the, the good news about all of that is finding the way to use our body in a more physiologically correct way. It's a win-win situation because when we do that, it, we're dealing with sound, of course, and this helps the sound. You know, there, there is a um, marvelous book, and I referenced that in the article by Th Thomas Mark, What Every Pianist Needs to Know About the Body. What too many pianists do, and certainly some of my students are guilty of this, and some of, I'm sure we can think of concert pianists that we see who do this, they do movements that really have nothing to do with producing the sound. Mm -hmm. And while a genius maybe can get away with that and not be affected, those of us who are more normal um, and maybe not quite as gifted, we're then working from a position of having to make compensations for the bad thing that we're doing or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to try to do is strip all of that way and get, get down to the, you know, what is absolutely natural for each student, for myself too, and start from there. So we don't get, you know, all these other movements, but I could go on and on about that, oh. about why that happens, but it's, um, we just part of it is the education system at the university level. I think these kids have to keep playing more and more difficult repertoire. They're spitting things out at the end of the semester. That's probably not fully digested. And when we all know that when you get on stage to perform with something, that's not quite ready, you're like this. And if you do that repeatedly, you know, we become what we do. Well, that's, kind of what I wanted to know. Thank you for sifting through all of those technique books. And, and now we want to know what are Jim's tips then? Like, what are you finding that is rock solid information that you take okay. to your students? Well, one thing is day what in and I day out. Yes. All, all the time is what I call the law of three R's of muscular tension Ooh, or okay. muscular contraction, not the old reading, writing, arithmetic, okay. but, um, Again, dealing with muscular tension, because 
the thing we have to realize is we cannot be relaxed and play the piano. No. Right? We can't do any physical activity and be relaxed. We have to learn how to release the things that we should release. Mm. And so the law of three R's for me is the right amount of muscular tension at the right place and the right time. So to dig into that, what is the right amount? The right amount of muscular tension is based upon what kind of sound we want to produce. If we're producing a very soft, that's going to be very different from playing, you know, the opening chords in the Tchaikovsky concerto where we're doing all of this. So that's the right amount. The right place is always in our fingertips because that's the only part of our anatomy that comes in contact with the keyboard. It doesn't do any good to have it here or some other place. Mm -hmm. It needs to be... Um, at the fingertip and the right time is right when that note plays. It doesn't do me any good to have this fifth finger poised and ready to go if I'm going to play that, the third <laughs> finger. That mm. tension here only inhibits this finger's ability to do what it needs to do. And it, it's still, after you know what I've been teaching for 35 years, I'm going to be 60 next year, it is astounding to me that our brain, our neurological system, our motor skill is so fantastic that we can play a very, very fast five finger pattern and still have a release after every finger, which is what you, it is essential for truly artistic playing. Leontine Price, that great soprano said it best, she goes, tension has no place in our art form. Mm. And it, and, um, it just doesn't, right? It's, she's obviously speaking about unnecessary tension, but trying to find um, the right way to do that. And so a great tip for, for that that can help students, um, and obviously this won't work for young people, but by middle school and high school, they certainly can be thinking about that. And I, I even have it um, on the board on, on the wall over here. It says, if it doesn't feel good, you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our, our anatomy Another astounding thing to me can fit so beautifully and so perfectly with this arrangement of white and black keys that we have. And so if it doesn't feel good, probably we can find a way to move more efficiently and more correctly. So, but the law of the three R's is really helpful, yes. I tell you. A lot of it has to do with awareness because I will do that too. I will play something like, okay, wait a minute. That doesn't feel good. Why am I, you know, and, and then being aware of it and then realizing what am I going to have to tweak? So how do you advise people if they are feeling pain somehow? You, you know, what are you, do you, are there red flags that we need to watch for? Yeah, there, there are. And because those flags often pop up long before the student, you know, I always say this, the human body can take an enormous amount of abuse or misuse before it says, mm -mm, you do this again, you're going to feel pain. And by then it's sort of too late because, you know, movement patterns, ways of playing are already formed. But obviously our hand is naturally like this. It's not like that. It's not with the, I have, you know, I'll get students who come to the university, but they cannot play without that fifth finger right. being curled oh. under. And yeah. I try to do it, you know, or other students who've learned to play like this. With their shoulders so again, it's yeah. getting back to what I mentioned before about starting from sort of baseline or even keel without any movements like that are just not right, because then we have to compensate for those things. So I always look for, for, for this kind of natural position. And if for students who have real tension in the hand, one thing that I did for myself when I reached, actually the very first thing I did when I, um, 
went back to playing after basically a year of not playing. So this would have been near the end of 1994. I got Tierney Opus 299 and I just started with number one, which uh, those people who know that exercise is just a two octave C major scale. But I did it like this. <laughs> I played, I'm going to have my keyboard here and I played, I had my hand on my lap and I did five, four, three, two, one, and I went through the whole thing like that. What's it take? 15 minutes to do that? Or I don't know, 10, wow. it takes a long yeah. time. But the key was to try to not let that start to happen. Right. And at first yeah. I couldn't do it. But after a couple of days of doing that, I could play without, you know, go to play the five without having these curling under or play the four without having the three, the third finger curl under. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't want to get to that point. Obviously you have to, that's, that's, you know, I, my feeling is, which is why in part I'm so keen on this classical stretch program that I wrote the article about, um, traditional piano pedagogy is very slow to change. And, and I think part of it is because what I said before, it's not broken and so it doesn't get fixed. And so by the time that students are possibly going to have a problem, it's when they're in their college years. Mm -hmm. And by that, they, they, they'll say, Dr. Litzman, I don't know what's wrong. I haven't play, I'm not playing any differently than I have for the last 15 years. And I have pain shooting up my arm. And they cannot grasp nor accept that it is the way they've been playing for the last 15 years that has led to that. Mm -hmm. You see? And so as um, you know, the old Soviet Union, they had such a great system of, of highly respecting the teacher of the very young beginner, mm -hmm. the four and five and six-year-olds, right? We don't mm -hmm. tend to do that as much in this country. Independent music teachers are, and that's, I consider myself really more of an independent music teacher than a co collegiate teacher. I have 17 students here at home, lots of really good ones that, you know, start at young age and they, they work mm -hmm. hard. I have two students playing in the Rachmaninoff Third Concerto right now. Wow. And, um, you know, it's we, we need to we need to educate the teacher of the young, the young beginning pianist because that's when habits are formed and the way and and undoing those kinds of things. We all know that with anything we try to change, right? It just gets harder and harder the older we get. Well, but of course, we would all love to know what James' secrets are. Do you have this all codified in a book? No, I don't. You know, I every time I talk at MTNA conference or at last time I talked uh, a couple of years ago at the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy mm -hmm. in Chicago, I was talking about um, practicing in symmetrical inversion, which is what uh, the thing that has probably helped me the most to recover. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about that in just a bit if you'd like. Um, but a couple of people asked me if I've written a book. And the truth is right now, I I am just loving having my hand be almost normal and being able to let out even if it's just for me here i don't play so many concerts but um being able to be at the instrument and just experience this joy of hearing the music mm. and and moving in a more almost normal way you know and so but i i realize i probably should do that um because what i have i think what i have to offer is is beneficial for all teachers not just pianists with focal dystonia um, because I, as I said, I think there are technical truths that we have to, we have to honor. Um, otherwise we can get ourselves into trouble, but not everyone though, right? Some people can smoke a pack right. of cigarettes for their yeah. entire life and never get lung cancer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but who wants to take that chance? I certainly don't. You know? Well, as a teacher myself, I'm always craving new 
ideas or the right ideas for the right technique. And it seems like it's very opinionated. Some mm -hmm. people are strongly geared towards one way of thinking and others are, you know, have a different opinion. So how, how do you come to your decision? It sounds like it has to feel good in the body and it's a whole body okay. experience. And how, how I believe it, what, what will make it feel good and, and therefore be right from a physical point of view is the work of each finger needs to be supported by the entire playing apparatus. Okay. So we're not going to divorce our fingers with just this kind of playing, but yet we want to move in such a way so that Again, the work of each finger is supported by the arm. And Chopin understood that. He understood that, and you just have to look at his etudes to know that, right? If, if the, the fourth finger can instantly be made as strong as the others by getting, by the walking the arm forward, you know, mm -hmm. as a most basic example, so that the fourth finger is supported by all of this. Um, and, and obviously trying to keep your hands playing like this and not in an ulnar deviated way, pulling, you know, when we're twisting our arms out, our hands out one way or the other, because, um, you know, it's, and, and you can do an experiment if people will like turn your hand out like this. So it's really ulnar deviated. So you really have a thumb alignment instead of the fifth finger. And if you move your fingers, you'll see they don't move nearly as easily as they do mm -hmm. if you have proper alignment. Right. So so really, it's following the natural flow of your body yes. and trusting that, you know, yes. and when you said guitar players, I always worry about guitar players when I see them play, because I think, how can a human being do that with their hands? And, yeah. you know, at least as a pianist, we have gravity on our side. Right. But as guitar players, um, I know that's a whole nother topic, but it is, I, but you're, you're, it's a, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm. And it's, yeah, I had years ago, a guitarist who was also a bit of a pianist and had, um, had de developed a focal dystonia and came to me for lessons. And um, it helped a little bit. The, the, the truth of the matter is most people, once they get this, I shouldn't say most, but far too many don't have the wherewithal to do what needs to be done to try it because changing your brain is very, very difficult. And the symmetrical inversion practicing that I spoke about before I'm not exaggerating when I say I'm at the piano every morning at 4.30 and I have about two hours of daily exercises almost entirely in symmetrical inversion that, um, that has really helped a lot. Would you like me to speak about what that is? Yes, please. Okay. Like in, yeah, symmetrical inversion. Okay. So I'm, yeah. I'm thinking that your hands are mirrored, mirroring that's each right. other. You, okay. That's exactly what we're doing. It's a, it's like if we were to put a mirrored um, two-sided mirror and look mm -hmm. this way or look that way, we would see the exact same arrangement of white and black keys. And we're lucky as pianists because the keyboard is the only thing that can be symmetrically inverted. And there are two notes that are the mirrored center of the, of the keyboard. D natural. So you can imagine you play D, E flat, and C sharp. You're playing whites and blacks at the same time. And the other one is A flat. Okay. So those are the two anchor notes. And whatever the passage is that you're doing, you just, so let's say you're starting on E up in the right hand, which is a whole step above the mirrored center note of D. Then your left hand will start on C, a whole step below. And so at the beginning, it takes a little while to figure it out, but it doesn't take that long. The real drawback of it is it sounds um, kind of discordant many times, <laughs> you know? Not, yeah. Um, and I, so that's one reason I got, I have out in the other room, I have a, one of those Yamaha hybrid 
um, mm-hmm. pianos that are, has a grand piano action. So I don't really, I mean, I wouldn't want to play only on that, but um, I can practice on that for a couple of hours with no problem and just really either leave it turned off or turn the volume way down. So it's not so. Um, so you're tricking your brain, but you're not uh, subjecting your ears to the pain of it. All. Right. And in terms <laughs> wow. of tricking the brain, what I always say when I talk about uh, symmetrical inversion is that my left hand is my teacher of my mm-hmm. right hand. So yes. when I can do something normally here, it's it's making this to move um, right. also more normally. I, I, you know, people who've heard me speak about this before will have heard this a few times. But I liken my brain to like uh, a strand of Christmas tree lights that are sort of all knotted up, and every little bit of improvement, every knot that I, if you will, that I get undone, that allows me to play in a more physiologically correct way allows me to get a little bit more improvement simply because of the fact that I'm moving correctly and not all contorted. Mm -hmm. I I hope that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Because I will do that with my students too, especially if they're playing something in parallel motion, like, okay, because we're usually thinking about our right hand and say, okay, let your left hand be in charge. And the minute they do that, things straighten up because they've changed their their thought process, right? So that's kind of what you're doing here is one hand is training the other. Yeah. And if I can say one other thing about that for yeah. uninjured pianists, yeah. when I, this happened not too long ago, I had a student, a high school girl who was playing Noctuelle, the first movement of Ravel Miroir, a thorny little nasty, and, and she was just struggling with this one passage. And I said, all right, you've been struggling with this for two or three weeks. Let's, let's, um, let's figure this out in symmetrical inversion in the other hand. So it was a difficulty in the right hand. So we just took a couple of minutes. It was just like a two measure thing. And so she finally figured out how to do it. And, and so she practiced it then for a couple of minutes. And I said, all right, so let's just do this normally. She played it. Her jaw was on the floor. She couldn't believe that it was so much better and so much easier for her. So something marvelous happens in the yeah. brain when we're doing this. But see, it's not a surprise because the two hemispheres well, I don't, I don't want to get too into that, but we draw on, on the strengths well, of each hemisphere yes. when we're doing this kind of... Well, um, you just did this, number. meaning you cut your you cut your face in half, uh, yeah. meaning you did you crossed the midline, that, yeah. right? That's the, yes. an important connection, yes. for, especially for young students. Yeah. So basically just what the pathways were connected yeah. just a little bit more by doing that. That's oh, right. okay. So now let's move forward because you had a new revelation and that's what's sparked this article or was it it was it a a brand new thing you really didn't know that perhaps you could improve your condition with exercise or that it was a brand new thing for me well i had been dabbling in the the program which is called classical stretch or eccentrics and the creator of that is miranda esmond white Mm-hmm. Some people, if they watch PBS and they're looking at the TV at 6 a.m., they'll likely see her because many stations across the country carry this, this uh, stretching program it is. But no, I, it was really, um, as I said, I had dabbled in this program for about five years, but I don't know, something happened in me and it was because it, it, I know what it was. It was getting colder weather and I, I'm, I'm always a walker. I, it is the rare day that I don't have more than 10,000 steps on my Fitbit. And I usually am up around 22. So I just am moving a lot and walking. And in the summer when I'm not teaching much, you know, for about five months of the year, I'm out on my bike riding at least 12 miles a day. And, um, and then it was getting cold and I wasn't riding as much. And I said, okay, 
I don't know, something snapped and I said, I'm going to commit myself to this. And so I did two of them, the 23 minute workouts. I did two in the morning and one in the afternoon. And just after a few weeks of this, I'm like, my God, this something is like different here. Wow. And, but I didn't connect it at all with the, with the stretching program. And um, then, so I was, I was, I was moving and you can't really see this, but I had this, this, I used to have like almost a, a deep crevice right down there between my, despite the problem being here down my second, between my second and third finger. And I could feel a knot in here. And, but then when I started doing all of these stretching program exercises that you do, then I became aware of, I don't know what to call it, a blockage or something. I could just feel it up here sort of in my bicep and through little by little, after maybe a couple of months of just doing this daily, this one disappeared and then darned if this didn't disappear in my hand. And um, I'm getting kind of ahead, but finally this, because this was like maybe in December of last year. And then in April of this year, I just reached out to Miranda and to find out if I, if she'd be willing to do an interview. And she did. And that's when she, she had said, she wasn't at all surprised. She said, mm -hmm. you know, people have a, a pain in their hip or something like this, so or their knee is bothering. So, but she goes, the blockage may be and then completely some other part of the body. And which is, I mean, I don't know if you want me to speak about this, but that's what is so marvelous about her stretching program. Because each 23, you do each 23 minute workout, that's all they are, they're never any longer is a full body workout and it's scientifically designed to rebalance the body. So you don't have to think, Oh, did I do my fingers today? Did I do my shoulder girdle? Did I do my hips or my knees? It does it all. Well, one might, might focus a little bit more on this or a little bit more on that, but they all work at all, eat, eat all muscles and all joints. And what I realized after talking with her, and I just never thought this was possible because I was after a year of not playing, I, I practiced every day because I can't move normally. Some small fine muscles have probably atrophied. And she said, without a doubt that that is the case. And so by doing all of this stuff and moving differently than I do when I'm practicing, I think it awakened these muscles and um, got them out of their small level of atrophy, which mm. made things a little bit easier. I mean, it's a little bit strange because I know we're talking about a brain problem, but it, it really has, there's absolutely no doubt on my mind that the stretching program has helped this. Mm. And what I think is so, so exciting, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, traditional piano pedagogy is not, I just don't think it's going to change completely in my lifetime where we have a more holistic, healthful approach to playing and not too much of this high finger and all this isolationism. What I believe and what I'm very interested in now, um, trying to think if I can devise some sort of study of looking at injured pianists versus healthy pianists who could commit to doing this, I think that this will rebalance the, the, the you know, when we're sitting here hunched over a piano for six hours a day or five hours a day, imbalances happen in our body. Mm -hmm. And by doing these big motions and all of this, I, I think it could help rebalance the body and make injuries for musicians much less prevalent. Because let's just say one other extremely important thing about the stretching program. It's different from any other program. It's different from yoga, for example, since, which is very popular among musicians. I know that. Mm -hmm. But you never, ever hold a pose. You're constantly moving. 
And the muscles in these stretching things, the muscles are strengthened in the lengthened position, which I think can be particularly helpful for pianists because when your things are opened up and you're not holding a pose, as soon as you hold a pose, you start to put pressure on the joints. And so when you're constantly moving and stretching in a lengthened position, you're liberating the joints. Mm. And that's what allows all the synovial fluid to get in there and to sort of heal itself. You know, I don't know if your listeners know that one of the reasons recovering from carpal tunnel syndrome or tendonitis is so tedious and just forever and to, to get over this is that there's limited blood flow. We all know that the flow of blood is what heals us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these tendons are in a sheath and have synovial fluid with very little blood in there. And that, so it just takes a very long time. Any, any of us who've, who've had uh, tendonitis, thank God I haven't, or have had a student or, or carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, the docs say, okay, you stop playing for six months. And when you return to playing, you play for two or three minutes at a time, and then you have to stop for an hour or something. It's a very slow, slow process. And I'm, my own feeling is that once we have that sort of injury, that's a weak link. It's like having mm. a chain, but one of the little rings is going to be made out of string or paper instead of metal. And we're going to have to be careful with that forever because it could happen again. And now with all the kids texting with their thumbs and all the computer and piano, right? It's, oh my gosh, it's overload for the system. <laughs> Well, I have to say that I'll be at the computer too long and my right hand will hurt and I'll just be so frustrated because, you know, I try and take care of my body when I'm playing the piano and, mm -hmm. and do things right. And then here I can mess things up at the computer so yeah. easily. So That's, it's easy to do. Uh, <laughs> We're all guilty of that. I, I know. I know. Okay. Yeah. So I, yes, when I, after I read this article, I'm like, I have to go look at that exercise program. So now you have just reminded me that I have to go look at that. And where do you access that? Well, um, you can uh, uh, um, sign on to the streaming. It's um, if eccentrics.com or classical stretch, either one, you Google that, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And you can just pay, I think it's like $14.95 a month, and you can have unlimited streaming, and which then you've got to do it at the computer. But I, I actually just bought the DVDs, some of them oh. from Miranda's uh, website, and others on Amazon, others on eBay. But I have... Um, I don't know, seasons 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And I just go through all of them. I do two in the morning and one in the afternoon. And wow. um, it's really, it's really remarkable. It's mm. just what, what if people who do this, and if, if someone, if any of your listeners try it, I can almost guarantee them that they're going to feel lighter and more buoyant and, and more liberated in their body. Mm. And while I could lose a few pounds, that's for sure, I'm in pretty decent shape. And I'm very lucky person that I, as I said, I'm almost 60 and I don't have aches or pains anywhere. I don't have mm. hips that are hurting or knees that are hurting, or maybe that's because for 20 years I was a swimmer. And um, mm -hmm. then I sort of stopped that because I developed a chlorine sensitivity and I was sneezing 50 times a day and my eyes were, so I said, okay, I gotta do something else here. And I was always hesitant to bike because of this, but I, I figured out how to do that. And I, have, I don't have any ill effects from doing that. Um, but most people do eccentrics or classical stretch, either name, um, mm -hmm. because of pain relief. Mm. And it really, I have, I have all sorts of relatives of people who have hip problems or this or that. Well, I'll give you an example. My sister, uh, who lives in, in near, uh, in Colorado, near Vail, every time she drives down to Denver to the airport, she said they have to stop and get out because 
She was a runner for quite a few years mm -hmm. and her hip is hurting her so badly. And after doing Miranda's exercises for about a month, she said, holy cow, I can go all the way down there without stopping and no pain. Wow. So that's why okay. most people do it. But I'm very, very intrigued. In fact, Miranda and I have spoken about, she said we should do a video about why musicians need to do yeah. some sort of, um, you know, tissue workout. This is a, a connective tissue. And if I could just um, say one thing about connective tissue, movement is so essential because they're now understanding how, how important connective tissue is. It connects every one of the tens of trillions of our cells in our body. And as a part of this whole dystonia thing, I interviewed, um, well, she, why don't we sort of interviewed each other, but at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, there's a Dr. Helene Langevin, who um, is director of complementary and integrative therapies, looking at things like acupuncture and connective tissue workouts. And either she said it there or in something I read or some watching some, you know, TED talk or some, something that she did. If our bones and muscles were pulled out of our body, our bodies would mostly keep their shape because of connective tissue. That's how ubiquitous mm -hmm. it is. And when we don't move, the, what we could, Miranda refers to as the oily bath, with its, all this oily substance that's in the connective tissue, it glues up. And so movement is what warms up that glue, that oily substance, and allows it to flow through our body. So we feel like this. Mm -hmm. I just... And, and then the other really good thing, because I think this is, for me, something that sets this apart from other programs. I, don't, it's not, I, I guess it is an exercise program because you will lose weight if you do this. Um, it's that it really taxes the brain because you're watching these complex body movements that she's doing and you have to do them without letting yourself fall over. And that's not mm -hmm. very easy to do. Like as an example, I don't know, I, I can easily stand on one foot and trace the alphabet with my other leg. And, and, and um, I mean, I actually could do that before I started doing this, but it's even easier now. Okay. And, and th these kinds of um, movements that keep the, the tissue all hydrated, um, I'll close with this. I am going to be one of those people that they are going to drag kicking and screaming <laughs> into old age. I have a lot of friends who are in their upper 70s and uh -huh. some people in their early 80s. And I see all these telltale signs of aging, hunched over, poor posture, mm -hmm. shuffling as they walk. And by God, I'm going to do everything I can to keep that from happening to me. So, And we are all here to witness that saying right now. We'll make sure yeah. we keep our eyes on Jim. Oh. I'm kind of the same way. I, I'm kind of with you. So whatever it takes. Um, and yeah. I, I like exercise. And actually, I miss my gym. I'm not going there anymore. I'm doing videos at home. So I'm going to be checking mm -hmm. uh, what you mentioned out. But I do a step class and it's very... Uh, she's such a good cure and it's a you know yeah. it's pretty high end where your brain is just going the whole time and i that's do great. miss that um, and i know that's good for the brain and it you know moving Absolutely. to music in in general is going to help your Absolutely. musicianship yeah that's so, a great thing my sister does a step class in, in st louis and she just loves it yeah and the, yeah i mean that's the other thing about the classical stretch is the music that miranda has chosen for these it's a, not all upbeat stuff which is also nice but there's a lot of um I would just call it sad music. It's like, you know, like sad movie music or yeah. something. It's just gorgeous. I'm sitting here with goosebumps and sometimes <laughs> almost tears in my eyes. And, and you know, we, studies have shown that unlike what you might think, that when we listen to sad music, our brain is flooded with endorphins that make us feel good. 
Mm. You know, it's very mm. interesting. And so that that's the other thing that um, why this program has worked for me, in addition to what this was a side benefit, I, I certainly didn't expect it. But now she really has made a believer out of me. It's it's that a I look forward to doing it in the morning. And I just, I have this overwhelming sense of well being when I mm. finish, mm. you know, so and, and the, the movement and exercise is so important. You know, I, I'm on the wellness committee for the National Conference of Keyboard Pedagogy. And my colleagues, I feel like I, do, I don't belong with them. They're just all so terrific and wonderful. And I just am not in the same league as them. And they, uh, many of these people, if you just look it up, you, you will know their names. They are at the forefront of all this mindfulness and, and help. And, and during COVID, right, we all, we needed this kind of help. Mm -hmm. But I think we just can't lose sight of the fact that we also have to have the physical fitness as well. We can't just we can't just have the mindfulness. We have to have the activity and the movement and all that. Totally so it's agree. Kind of a win-win in that way. I was going to ask you, what's your teaching tip to go? I think you already gave us quite a few already. Uh, but you know, for us who are going back to our youngsters or even you know our high school students, what what can you tell us? What can you give us that we can bring to our next lesson to help our students and ourselves be more aware of you know the right technique? And the well, right I hate path. to say the right yes. technique is yes, what I right. believe is right. Yes. But what I, I'll try to say this very, very briefly. If this kind of body awareness, if we should call mm -hmm. it that, is maybe new to some of uh, the teachers, the first thing that I would say is become aware of yourself, how you feel. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you need to put a mirror next to the piano or something, uh, you know, it's very easy for students whose shoulders go up. I touch them gently and they go down. And literally two seconds later, the shoulders right back up. All right. So become aware of yourself. Then observe your students. Look at them. Look, if, you, if you have the benefit of having 15 students come in each week, that's a lot of research you can do. Mm -hmm. How do they look? Are they sitting? Is, um, you know, is the height of the bench good? It's, you know, for in terms of getting good habits in place, young people have to have pedal extenders. You, you've got to have their feet balanced because if their feet are dangling, mm -hmm. the weight of their body is going into their hands, into the mm -hmm. keyboard. And then they're doing something we call key bed. So the tip would be deal with yourself first, become aware. Equally important, if not more important, look at all of your students, see what, what's going on, and then get to work with having them sit properly. Forward on the bench, right? Not sitting back like this. So there's forward of their sit bones mm -hmm. and and good alignment with the hands so that the arm is always supporting what the fingers are doing. Yeah, what I really wanted to, you know, to keeping the tip at the end is really, if it doesn't feel good, you're not doing it right. But mm -hmm. that's not deep enough, because they need to know how to how to implement that. But I think it does start with the posture and the alignment of everything. Because when you're not dealing with making compensations, wonderful things can happen, because you feel liberated at the instrument. Mm -hmm. And then that affects the sound, of course. There is one other question that I wanted to ask is when you look back before you were diagnosed, do you know specifically what might have caused the, the I, complication? I can't say specifically, but I do have, um, well, first of all, I was like the poster child, okay? I was, I'm male, the, 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 which is men get it more than women. I'm type A, a bit of a perfectionist. And I was in my early 30s when I got it. Um, 
and or 30 years old, which is a very, very typical. I, I think Fleischer was about that age. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but that in conjunction also with a teacher that um, I didn't, it was, I felt um, uncomfortable making mistakes. And uh, so what I think what happened is I just learned to play with too much tension everywhere. Mm. But, you know, I don't want how uh, you we have to be particularly careful of the particularly talented students. That's the way you read about dystonia and they will say this because their image, their sound of, in their mind is so powerful of what they have to come out. They sort of find a way to get that to come out, even if they're doing terrible things with their playing. Mm. And I know in my own sense that I was just doing too much key betting. I mean, I simply didn't know at the time about the escapement level of the piano. And I was in my doctoral degree. Nobody mm. had ever told me that. And you, you, you have to aim your touch to that bump, to the point of sound, not down to the bottom. Otherwise, you have all this extraneous motion. You know, mm. but it was it was not one specific thing, but it's probably all of those things in conjunction. Combination, yes. That, um, in just too many years of not doing it right. So, uh, well, Jim, I think yeah, we're all going to be standing in line for your book when you decide that you want to write it. But of course, don't sit at the computer when you do it. Uh, we don't want That's you to right. write anything, right? I don't know if you can talk yeah. it through, have someone type yeah. it for you. Right. Wow, just we could go on and on. You've just filled us with so many wonderful tips but also just a good perspective you know i think wow. you know thank you we all of us wherever we are with our students can be reminded of what the point is the point That's is right. to make healthy musicians and you know my heart breaks for you thinking that the one thing that you love making music that you couldn't do um, because that's that's it's really hard eat your soul. So I'm so it's glad really that you are finding yeah. that back again. So yeah. thank you. It's very good news for you. So thank you so much for joining me today. Really My appreciate pleasure. It. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Leila. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Jim. Okay, bye. A huge thank you to Jim for openly sharing his struggle with vocal dystonia. In our correspondence before today's conversation, he said to me, no one understands how demoralizing it is when one is first diagnosed with vocal dystonia. I couldn't play a C major five finger pattern to demonstrate for a six-year-old. Talk about feeling like a fraud. In Key Ideas, episode 22, Peter Dugan talked about his embarrassment of injuring himself at the piano. Whatever we do repeatedly, just like athletes, there are risks involved. But it seems that musicians shy away from talking about this reality. We all know that playing music can nurture and tend to the soul. So let's make it a priority as teachers to stay informed, to keep our students, our pianists, making music injury-free for a lifetime. I'm Leela Viss, and taking a moment to stretch. See you in the trenches. 